I'd just like to, um, to point out that Paul's really growing as a person because probably only six months ago, if I'd said that I was nervous, he would have made some opportunity to make a joke and take the mick out of me. But there he supported me with love and with prayer. And that's really nice, Paul. What just happened before that is he didn't mean to do this, but I said, oh, I'm, I'm really nervous, Paul. And he's like, don't worry, you're speaking about something you know. And I was like, yeah, no, that's great. I'm preaching on when you make loads of mistakes this morning. So it wasn't quite as encouraging as I know he meant it to be. But I'm talking about uh, this morning, what happens when you make the mistakes, when you cause the pain and destruction, which according to Paul, I know lots about. So that was kind of a backhanded compliment, but we'll go with it, Paul. So thank you for trying to be encouraging. Uh, I appreciate it. So... Um, if you're just joining us, if this is your first time, or if you just missed a few weeks, we're in the middle of a series uh, called God is Good, and it has to go up at the end because there's a question mark about it, okay? So we're asking questions about, um, or we have been asking questions about, when bad things happen to us, when things we never expected, things we never wanted happen to us, how can God still be good when there's pain, when there's confusion, when things that we never saw coming uh, impact our lives and cause this kind of pain and questioning? Where is God's goodness in all of that? And um, it's been really powerful. Uh, it's all online if you need to go back and listen to them. But uh, Adam and Gemma have been sharing very personally um, about the issues they, they've had with trying to conceive and have a baby. And it's been... Um, raw and it's been vulnerable and it's been um, beautifully honest but that's a it's a situation that's been thrust on them it's something that they didn't choose this has just happened to them and it's the best way that they're they're going through it now asking these questions but uh, like I said a minute ago what I'm talking about this morning is slightly different the subject that I'm talking on is is God still good even when I'm not when you've made the decisions, when it's been your choices that has caused pain and destruction, whether that's in your own life, in the lives of others, a mixture of the two, how can God still be good when we're the ones that have caused the pain? I'm talking about when your choices and your decisions have caused chaos, not just in your life, but in the lives of those around you. And it's a, it's a difficult question, and it's uh, even harder to talk about, because um, unfortunately... Th- this has happened a lot in my life. I've been one of those people that has made um, life choices and decisions that have impacted not just myself, but others, that has caused pain and destruction and confusion and heartache. But I know I'm not alone in this. I know that I'm not the only person in the room that can look back to a time, whether it's big or small, whether it was a really massive sin, or whether it was just a stubbornness or an uh, ignorance or an ignoring of God. Those moments when you've made the choice um, to, to do what you wanted to do, to look after yourself, to make sure you were okay at the cost of other people. I don't know if you can relate to this. I was trying to think of an analogy of the best way to explain what I'm talking about. And for me, it's, it's about being a human hand grenade. So those times when the, de- the decisions and the choices you've made have exploded, then they've hit the people closest to you. So often our choices and the decisions that we make affect those that we're closest to. And so the, the closest thing I can come to is this human hand grenade. We make choices, something explodes in our life, and we hit the people closest to us, and they're hurt, and they're injured, and um, there's a lot of destruction and chaos. But it's not just those people. The shrapnel from the grenade hits people that are minding their own business, these innocent bystanders that are going on and carrying their own pain, carrying their own issues, carrying their own challenges, and they are affected by the choices and decisions you've made. What I'm talking about this morning isn't going to be glossing over any of this. It's really important that if you can look back to a time, whether you're in the middle of it now, or you can just look back on these decisions and these choices you've made, is we're not saying that um, God is still good, so it doesn't matter that if you um, chose to hurt other people. It doesn't matter if you followed your own selfish desires. What we're talking about is those things still matter. 
There's still consequences to that. There's still um, issues and forgiveness that need to be asked. We're not saying that um, God's goodness just instantly covers all of your um, consequences. There are still um, reconciliation and forgiveness to be asked for, for when you've done those things. But what we are talking about is how it affects our view of God when you're the one that's caused it, how can God still be good? Because, okay, it's not like the other situations we've spoken about. It's not about the fact that these things were thrust upon you. And essentially, the question that we were asking is, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's not talking about that. Now we're talking about, when you've caused this, how can God be good? Because there's too much pain, there's too much mess, there's too much chaos. And what can God do with all of that chaos, with all of that mess? When you've caused... um, (laughs) fallout after fallout after fallout where is God's goodness in all of that how can God work when everything seems blown up beyond belief it got me thinking about um God which you'd hope when I'm uh, standing up here preaching but um in particular when we're introduced to God so we go to Genesis and we go to Genesis 1 and um it's for I'm sure most people have heard it, whether in Sunday school or primary school or what have you, but God's creating the world and he's setting things in motion. He's saying, okay, I'm going to make this beautiful creation that we call earth and the rest of everything else. And um, I'm not going to go too deep into creation or anything like that. What I want to focus on is Genesis 1 verse 2 and it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because in our lives, we can become obsessed with making everything neat and tidy, with presenting the best version of ourselves uh, to our our friends, to our work colleagues, whoever it is, to to church, turning up on a Sunday. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Deflect, deflect. Because I don't actually want to go into the fact that I might have something going on. So we do our nice kind of catch-ups and our nice chats and we make small talk. But ultimately we're all in the business so often especially if you've been around church for a while in making the Christian life about being clean and proper and all together and handling everything but in the middle of this creation when God says you know what I'm going to create something beautiful and I'm going to create this earth and it's going to be amazing he starts with chaos he starts with messiness he doesn't seem to have it all laid out and it's right this happens this happens this happens this happens there is chaos and there is messiness and When you go into the Hebrew, into the original language that this verse was written in, we have words like formless, empty, darkness, deep, spirit, hovering, all of these words. But the the Hebrew language has much more depth. And what they speak about is things like formless, confusion, void, empty, unreality, obscure, abyss, wind, hovering, spirit. All of these words are tied up in the creation of the world. This arguably kind of um, greatest ever creation of God starts off in confusion. It starts off with there being an emptiness, with there being a void, with there being an abyss, with things hovering, everything that can't be substantiated, everything that is just um, ethereal and you can't collate it. You can't say, okay, so God did that and he did that and he did that. He started with this this brew, this stewing of chaos and of um, things you can't grab hold of. And that for me is difficult because when I think about creating things in my life, when I think about getting a hold of my life, I think about things that I can measure. Am I doing good in work? Am I, am I being a good friend? Am I working hard? Am I going to church and serving? And I have things that I want to measure to make sure that my life is all together. That actually, if there's a lot of chaos, if there's a lot of uncertainty, that makes us as, as humans, but especially as Christians, um, uneasy. 
We don't like messiness. In fact, we spend so much of our life trying to get comfortable, trying to avoid it. But God doesn't. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you, and I'm going to go into it in a bit more depth, but God doesn't avoid chaos. He doesn't avoid messiness. And just as a side note, when God goes on to create the earth, he separates the light and the dark, but he doesn't get rid of the darkness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but writing this uh, this week, I've kind of been camping out a bit on that, that God doesn't get rid of the darkness. He uses it, he separates it, but there is still a place, a role, a something for the darkness. And what we see time and time again is that God is not intimidated by messiness. In fact, he works in it. And uh, for those that were here last week, Gemma spoke about how God uses pain as a a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses pain to disrupt us. He doesn't cause it. He is not the author of your pain. And you need to hear that this morning. Some of you will have heartbreaking things going on right now. And it might be that loads of people know about it. It might be that nobody knows about it. But God is not the author of that, but he can use it. Chaos is the canvas that God uses to paint his masterpieces on. Chaos is the canvas that God uses to paint his masterpieces on. And I can tell you why you know that that's true. Because when we're first introduced to God, we find out he's a creator, but we find things that are formless and empty and void and messy and chaotic. So God seems to instantly, the first thing we find out about him is that God is comfortable with chaos. He's comfortable with um, messiness. He doesn't avoid it, he works with it. And then when we're introduced to God, we're introduced to this idea that actually during the creation there seems to be three of God, but yet there's one God. And so we're introduced to this thing again where we're like, okay God, I can box you in, so you're the creator, but you kind of have these other aspects of you as well, and that's confusing. So then when finally humans come on the earth and they start to get relationship with God, they go, amazing, so what do you look like, God? God's like, nah, you don't, you don't get to choose what I look like. You don't need to make an image of me. I just am. And you're like, okay, I'll go with you a bit, God, but that's still a bit confusing. So what's your name? At least we can have your name. And God, kind of a smart so-and-so decides to go, my name is I am that I am. It's like, come on, God, like, cut me some slack. Can you not just give us a basic name to call you? And he's got all these names, and it's confusing, and there's so much messiness. You're just trying to get this relationship with God, and God seems to be so comfortable in the confusion. Then when you kind of think, right, we're going to get to meet God firsthand. He's going to become a human, so he's going to come down as this king who's going to reign. He's going to take control of the world, and he's going to make it this perfect place, and God turns up as a baby, and it's like, really? Like, that's not the best way to do it. Why would you turn up as a baby when you could turn up as this conquering king and set everything in your own image? God seems to be okay, again, with confusing people, with setting things in a backwards way. Then, when Jesus finally comes to giving his life for us, when he decides you know what, I'm going to die and set everyone free and then I'm going to rise again. He takes this messiness of blood and of screaming and of sweat and of tears and that's how we're saved. Those of you in here that would call yourself Christians or would believe that Jesus died for you, have you ever thought about that our salvation, whatever that phrase means, our relationship with Jesus, our way in, came through dirt and mud and sweat and tears and blood? God is okay with the chaos. And then, just to make things even crazier, he decides to take this image of a crucifix, the cross, and he makes that a sign of hope and of peace to people thousands of years later. 
People in here will be wearing crosses. People in here will have crosses in their homes. This was an image that was designed to strike terror into people's hearts. It was a torture implement that the Romans had invented to strike fear into the heart of people. And 2,000 years later, we're wearing it around our necks because it means hope and it means life. The chaos, the confusion that made people run in fear, Jesus took and he made it hope and he made it life. God seems to be overly comfortable with messiness and with confusion, but we as humans are not. And we can spend so much energy pretending that the messiness doesn't exist. That we avoid the important questions. Part of this whole series is trying to tackle these big questions that if you're with us for the first time or uh, the friends that we interact with or our family members, whoever it is that might not know God will ask these big questions. How can God be good when this has happened to me? How can God be good when this thing happened to my family? How can God be good? We're tackling these questions because they matter. And it can be really tempting um, when you're putting together a preaching series to go with something you feel fairly confident about the answer. Um, I remember me and Ad speaking about this series and um, what struck me is, like I said, as preachers you want to have a A and a B and a C and a D. You want to know where you're going, you know how to answer that question, answer that question, and at the end you tie it all up with a ribbon. The power that's come in this series from what you guys have been feeding back to us, but of, of just what we've experienced being in this church and the atmosphere that this series is creating is we don't have a, a landing spot. Like credit to Ad for taking on this subject and for talking about the vulnerability. Adam and Gemma, to use the very public question that we've been digging into, don't have an answer. They don't have a um, polished ending yet. We're all in the messiness still, and that's going to stay there for a while. And what we're finding is that in or amongst the messiness, God is still here. God is still God. God is not intimidated by it. We don't need to wrap things up the same way that we always do. We as Christians can become convinced that having it all together is the aim. The whole reason we should turn up to church is so that you know, we can tick the box and say, yeah, I'm a churchgoer and I love Jesus and my life is really good because the Lord Jesus helps me out with everything. Now, I'm not trying to make light of stuff. I'm not trying to mock anyone. What I'm saying is that almost every person in here is not all together. I'm going to go on let me say nobody in here is all together. But there's something in us, something innate, which goes, oh, I can't let people into that area of my life. I can't admit that I'm struggling here because I'm a Christian. And that means that everything is okay with, with God because somehow, somewhere along the way, we picked up this idea that, church and God makes everything okay. The irony about all this, and I can say this with real authority, is that my most destructive choices and my most destructive decisions have come from me juggling my pain and the messiness that's in my life, but being too scared to tell anyone. Being so convinced that I have to project this best version of myself to everyone I come into contact with. That I need everyone to know that I have it all together. Yeah, things are tough, but I'm doing okay. And I can do everything as long as Jesus is with me. Now, that is a true statement, but when it comes down to reality, we need to open up. We need to break this idea that if life is messy, then God isn't in control. And if God isn't in control, then how can he be good? That isn't going to cut it if we're going to get a real faith, if we're going to interact with a real Jesus. We need to be real as well. And that's terrifying. 
But letting God into that chaos, letting God into that um, confusion of our lives changes things because we can't box God in anymore. Now, I'm all for getting a God that I can understand. That makes me feel really good. When I know the answers that Jesus would give, when I think, oh, okay, that's a good answer, yeah, because, you know, God is good all the time, and I can say that, and most people in church will go, mm, yes, I agree. Then I can walk away and go, right, I've done that. But what I'm finding is when I allow the chaos or the confusion or the places that I am unsure or insecure in my life come out, then chaos shakes up our preconceived ideas of how big God is and how capable he is. If you're facing a situation in your life now that you just think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to cope. I don't know where God is in all of this. The chances are you're talking about a God that you have allowed to shrink down, that you have tried to say, God works like this, he doesn't work like this. God is like this, God isn't like this. And we've tried to shrink God to make ourselves feel better. But the problem is when you come up against a situation or a circumstance in life that is bigger than the God you've made, then we think, where are you, God? Where's your goodness? You've disappeared. When actually, could it be that because we've tried to make God neat and altogether and proper, then he isn't big enough to deal with what we've done. We need to let the chaos spill out so that God can surprise us with how big he is, with how powerful he is, of how capable he is. I can say, because I've lived it, that having a life that is all together and clean and proper is just false. It's false. And it causes pain and destruction and for human hand grenades to go off everywhere because eventually everyone reaches the end of themselves. Everyone finds that the all-togetherness, the trying to bottle everything up, the I'll deal with this, I'll deal with this, I'll deal with this, this kind of um, obsessive nature we have of controlling everything eventually runs out. And when we get to the end of ourself and the end of a God that we've neatened and that we've put into our own ideas, then we feel hopeless. We feel like the goodness of God no longer exists because we can't see it because we've shrunk God down. I feel like there are people in this room this morning that if you're brave enough, will be able to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm just clinging on. I'm just holding on to making sure that everyone knows I'm all together or even convincing ourselves, look, you can cope with this, Lou. You're doing okay. Just hold it together. Just another week, another week, another week. And you are at the end of yourself and the God that you've neatened doesn't seem big enough to deal with the chaos you've got going on in your life. I'm telling you this morning and God is telling you this morning that you can let go, that you don't have to cling on. You don't have to hold tight to control. You can let the messiness spill out. You can let other people see the chaos in your life. Because when we put down the pretense, when we let people and we let God see the real state of our heart, it can be, it is terrifying, but it is so life-giving. It is so releasing to finally let go and go, you know what, I don't have it all together and I am broken and I am lost and I don't know what to do right now. And when we can admit that, we can find that we've created opportunities for goodness and grace where there used to be walls of defence. Pain has a way of making us honest. Now, uh, I was supposed to be running the Cardiff Half Marathon this morning, but I'm lazy and couldn't be bothered. So I'm preaching here instead, which is a wonderful get-out, so thank you very much. I've not had to go through pain this morning. But a couple of weeks ago, I did the Bristol Half Marathon. I think Jim's got a few photos to show. 
Oh, yeah. I'm looking all right in the left and the right. The one in the middle, I am in pain. And that was probably only about three miles in. So um, pain has a way of making us honest. And I found this out because... No, it says marathon, mate. I don't know where I'm about. Look, marathon, marathon. It's proof, mate. No, I, I, I completed a half marathon. I completed a half marathon. So... <laughs> Shut up, mate, I got the mic. I should have brought my medal. That would have been so good. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so pain has a way of making us honest. And I found this out because um, I, am, I am lazy by nature. Um, I'd like to stand up here and pretend that, you know, I'm some fitness freak and doing half marathons is what I do all the time. I'm not. I'm so lazy. I demolished a four-person cheesecake on my own in one sitting about three weeks ago. Um, I, uh, yeah, I do things like this because I feel like I've got a point to prove to myself. So um, I'm not as fit as I'd like to think. I'm not as fit as I'd like to uh, stand up here and say, oh yeah, I do this all the time. I'm not that healthy. And so when I decided to sign up for the half marathon, I was like, it'll be great motivation. I'll actually get fit. I'll go to the gym. Uh, Joshy Court sorted me out with a wonderful gym membership. I've used it eight times in about four months. So um, <laughs> thanks very much. Uh, I... Yeah, I kind of underestimated the fact that I should probably train for a half marathon. And when I got there, the first couple of miles, I was fine. I was doing okay. It's hit like mile four, and it's 13 miles for the half marathon. Um, and I've hit like mile four, and I'm like, I'm struggling here. But I can't, I can't let on. There's no one there. But I kind of think, right, I've got to, got to push through this. So I run on. Hits about mile six, and I'm genuinely struggling. I'm like, I'm not even really halfway. Like, I need to really push on. And you like to think that all your motivation, thinking, yeah, think of how proud I'm going to feel when I've crossed this finish line. Think of the achievement. That doesn't cut it. You get to in pain at mile six, and you're like, I just want to give up. If there wasn't thousands of people around me, I would happily just walk off this... Um, track and basically just go yeah yeah I completed it and then just hope no one ever checked <laughs> to make sure that I did um, which was very tempting but you find weird things and you find something out about yourself that you never wanted to admit and that is that for me I will use anything as motivation and so it started getting ridiculous where I was like oh if I get to the next hundred meters I'm gonna like allow myself a sip of my water really stupid things that just aren't motivating at all and then the Lord answered me. He sent through the weirdest of all motivations. Um, and I think Jim's got a, a photo now, which is wonderful. So these came through. <laughs> these came through uh, as, after I'd picked my story. So sometimes, sometimes when you get to a story, you can be accused as a preacher of exaggerating or going over the top. For once, thank you, Jesus, I have photographic evidence that what I'm telling you about is entirely true. Now, this gentleman here in the orange don't know his name, but I know he was running for a charity called, uh, it's in the bag, and it's about testic testicular cancer, and their like, gimmick for raising money is they run in Y-fronts, so I don't know if you can see, but he's not wearing anything except for these pair of like, very bright orange Y-fronts, and they're, they're small. Like, I can tell you now, from running behind him for most of the race, there was not a lot of coverage, and so, weirdly, I became fixated, because normally, <laughs> yeah, Normally, people are like merging in and out of each other and you're kind of trying to find a gap to keep your pace because you don't want to slow down. It just so happened that we hit exactly the same pace at exactly the same time. So from mile six onwards, I've got this gentleman here and without being crude, I've got his buttocks, let's just call them buttocks, moving up and down and that is what I'm focusing on. So I'm just running, thinking, as long as I can keep pace with this 
gentleman, then I should get a good time for my marathon. As long as I can just focus. And I don't want to admit that. I certainly didn't want to admit it in front of church. But pain has a way of making us honest. What I particularly like about this is they're quite low quality images, low res images. But I promise you this is true. In this photo on the right hand side, you can't quite tell. But my eyes aren't looking forward. They're looking down (laughs) at the corner of where this guy is. There is a direct line of sight between my eyes and his buttocks. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know why that did, but it worked and I got a relatively good time and I crossed the finish line and I can only thank this guy for the weird motivation he brought to me. Um, Pain has a way of making us honest. We don't like to admit things, but when you're in pain, the pretense drops. The idea that actually I'm quite fit and I'm young and I can do this. I'm not fit, I'm not young, I couldn't do this. But you get this weird honesty that when things hurt, when things have blown up in your face, when things have fallen apart, you drop the need to be all together. Now, unfortunately for some of us, so often it happens that it's not a choice. We don't choose to... Uh, let the pretense drop, things are taken away from us, things are stripped from us, we've caused enough pain and heartache that we lose the energy, we lose the spirit to go, you know what, life is fine and great and I'm handling everything. And when pain comes, and you guys know this, I know you know this because this is a universal truth, that pain has a way of making us be honest. And we drop the pretense, we drop the pretending that everything's okay. It might be bloody, it might be chaotic, but at the same time, we find ourselves strangely liberated. The old things that we used to pour so much energy and striving and clinging onto all of a sudden don't matter. The facade and the image and the presentation and the energy that we poured into making sure everyone else knew that we had it all together is gone. And instead, in its place, is this raw, honest, tender, vulnerable and uncomfortable position. But it's strangely liberating. When we drop the facade and the image and the presentation and we say, this is who I am and I need a God that is big enough to handle the chaos in my life, there is a freedom and a relief and a breathing out that happens when you go, okay, I don't need to pretend anymore. And pain has a way of making us honest. And when that happens, we can then own up to our pain, the pain that we've caused ourselves, but the pain that we've caused others. We can go to the people that we need to and we can say, I'm sorry for what I did to you. I'm sorry for the choices I made that caused pain and heartache when you didn't even deserve it, when you weren't even aware. I'm sorry that my selfishness caused that. Because the pretense is gone and when we take responsibility for our actions and we admit defeat and we ask for forgiveness from those that we hurt, we can meet, and maybe for the first time, we can meet a Jesus who came down into the messiness and the bloodiness and the chaos of life, who understood that life is crazy and doesn't go to plan because our projection isn't meeting our projection of Jesus anymore. The real, open, raw, vulnerable us gets to step up to the real, raw, open, vulnerable Jesus. And that changes things. Uh, Paul, I don't know if you want to head up. A Jesus we get to meet for the first time who died for us, who would die for us again a hundred billion times. We need to hear this morning that God's goodness is not washed away in blood and sweat and tears of life. 
God remains God in the middle of the chaos. God is not waiting for you to sort your stuff out and make everything clean and presentable so that he can get to work. He's saying to you this morning, as he's saying to me, as he has said to me so many times in my life, I am here. I am getting my fingernails muddy and dirty because I am down in real life with you. I am not absent. I am not in some cloudy, pearly heaven, distant from your pain and suffering. I am down in the middle of it. The wonderful thing about pain, and that's a strange sentence to say, but the wonderful and the beautiful thing about pain when you've gone through it is that it opens you up to see others' pain. It takes us out of our self-centeredness, our need to be um, all together and to make sure we're juggling our life. When things hurt and when we've gone through something, it opens us up to look out as a church, as friends, as family, as colleagues and go, where's the pain? Where are people hurting? Who's going through what? It opens us up to look outwards and go, I know what it feels like to come to the end of yourself. I know what it feels like to have pain and to have chaos kicking off in my life. And it it gives us more than just a sympathetic Christian, I'm sure that's really terrible for you, I'm just going to pray. And it gives us this radical empathy where we can stand in suffering with someone else and share that load. There's an amazing quote um, from a a book that I've read, and it's from two characters that are talking to each other. One of them is a priest who has lived his whole life pretty much without pain or suffering. He's had a relatively easy life, and um, he's chatting to someone who's had a life of the opposite, where it's just been pain and confusion. And um, the, the priest, the guy who's not been through anything, loses his wife in this book, and he's left asking these questions he'd never have to ask he's never had to ask before and he says this wonderful thing about Jesus but about sharing in people's suffering sharing in people's pain taking ourselves out of our self-centered and selfish natures and looking out to see where the pain is with other people and the priest says this talking about sharing in pain together not being alone in your suffering isn't it wonderful It makes all the difference to know there's someone else screaming alongside you. And that's the point of the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth. I can see that so clearly now. God came into the world and screamed alongside us. Interesting idea, that. God came into the world and screamed alongside us. If you have built a God or neatened up a God that is far away and sits as some kind of control freak in the sky, you need to hear this this morning and you need to unbox that God. Let the messiness spill out. Let a a God who works in chaos get bigger than your problems. God came into the world and screamed alongside us. There's a few verses that are coming up. It's Jesus at the end of his life. And again, the original language, we use the word cried out. In the original language, it's screamed. And there's something more visceral about that. If you need to know whether Jesus is with you or alongside you, he's screaming alongside you in your pain. And it makes all the difference to know that God is not separate from your pain, that he doesn't stand at a distance and go, sort that out, deal with that pain. And when it's neat and tidy, then I'll step in. Jesus saved us through chaos, through nails driven in through his wrists, through blood and sweat and tears and screaming. That is where we were saved. 
in the middle of the chaos, not when things were neat and tidy. He brought life out of pain. When everything seemed lost and hopeless, he rose again, he came back to life, and he brought life from chaos. And he can do the same with us. He can do that this morning. He isn't waiting for you to hit a milestone or to pray enough times or to read your Bible enough times. He is saying to you this morning, I can help. I'm here. I'm alongside you in this. So we ask that question again, what can God do with all of this chaos when we've caused it, when we're the ones that have exploded and hurt the people around us? He can start a revolution like he did 2,000 years ago. He can bring healing to the rawest of hurts. And ultimately, he can bring life from death. I'm going to pray. Dad, I thank you that...